Aviation is one of my personal passions. And one of the things I have in my airplane is this little Wright Brothers quote. The desire to fly is an idea handed down to us by our ancestors, who in their grueling travels across trackless lands and prehistoric times, looked endlessly on the birds soaring freely through space, at full speed, above all obstacles, on the infinite highway of the air. So Jacob, I know why I fly. Why do you fly? And what makes you want to be in this industry? You know... I do enjoy flying, and it's a lot like what you just quoted. It is a a level of freedom that you just can't have any other way. It really is an endless highway. Yeah, freedom is the reason. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. What if you could solve the aviation industry's global carbon emissions problem with a simple tweak to the airplane wing design? What if recreational pilots and commercial airlines alike could reduce their operating costs, increase safety, and protect the planet at the same time? Well, this scenario is already here, thanks to our guest this week, Jacob Klingensmith. Jacob is the president of Tamarack Aerospace Group, a game changer in the aviation industry. Tamarack's patented active winglet technology is a design alteration that extends the plane's wingspan, so it performs more like a glider. The plane burns less fuel by decreasing drag and climbs better to more efficient altitudes faster. In our interview this week, we take the 10,000-foot view and then we zoom in for a close-up on the details. In every episode, we start with the guest background to establish what life looked like before it happened. Little did I know, Jacob was born to be an aviator and a pioneer in disrupting the industry. I grew up in Washington State and started flying actually with my grandpa. He was a truck driver and as a young man, got to fly with him all over the place in his little airplane. And that's what really kind of exposed me to the idea of flying in the first place. And probably... If I had not had that experience, I wouldn't be in aviation today. I got a degree in mechanical engineering and had an opportunity to work at an aerospace company right out of school, which was a great opportunity and got to do a lot of things as a young engineer and just kind of got hooked. I stayed in the industry because I was enjoying myself, enjoying the challenges in many dimensions. That's led me to to where I am today, running a, a small company. So let's go back to Washington. Were you in the shadows of Boeing? I did live near Boeing, near one of the Boeing plants that was built kind of in the 90s. And so that changed the economics in the area for sure. That didn't mean anything to me really at the time, but certainly was in the area, the culture as far as how it frames the whole sort of Puget Sound area and forms a lot of the activity there for sure. So let's talk about your early flight experiences with your grandpa. I used to go with my father flying and hanging out at the, the local airports and he, Piper and a Cessna, and, and I would sit on Yellow Pages and dating myself now. 
It wasn't a yellow page, and it was like a crate box, like from a fruit crate. Okay. And he would literally say, hey, Rocky, you know, your turn, your plane. And I was, the youngest memory I have of doing that was about eight. Totally illegal, I used to say. I used to fly illegal. But me and my father grew up, you know, as a crop dust pilot. No formal training and all the things that you do. So your grandfather was a truck driver. He was a pilot for fun. What was your fondest memory, and at what age did that start? That's hard to say. My fondest memory, I think, you know, we did a big trip when I was about 15 or 16. We flew from Washington State to Missouri in in his 172 Cessna. So we got to see Mount Rushmore. We got to go to Leadville, Colorado, which is kind of a bucket list item for any pilot. And, you know, we just had a great trip over and back. Of course, I got to do a lot of the flying as his default autopilot and got some great experience in the right seat and, and got to see a lot of things. Flying, especially private flying, you get to see so much more than you do commercial flying and so much more, even in some ways, more than you would see if you were driving. So it was just a great experience from that standpoint. Well, and you get to play every role. As I always tell people, I said, well, you don't understand. It's like, I'm the pilot. I'm hospitality. I'm security. <laughs> it's like your pre-check, your run-up, your pilot, your everything. So you guys literally were like flying the paint off that Cessna because that's that's a big trip. I'm impressed. So at what age did you officially get your certification and make this part of a regular part of your life? Yeah. So I've been in the industry since 2006. And just almost two years ago, I finally got my pilot's license. So I've enjoyed being in it and around it and finally just sort of made the time two years ago. And now I have three young kids. So I enjoy getting the opportunity to take them up and fly and see them experience that. So what other passions did you have besides flying as a kid? Were you into science and mathematical things or, you know, sports? What, what kind of things did you do? Yeah, I would say, you know, more science and math. I was always taking things apart. You know, that's kind of how I ended up on an engineering track for my education. Is I was always taking things apart to figure out how they worked, which thankfully my parents supported that 100%. And then also, you know, things like dirt bikes and just anything mechanical, fixing and riding and all of that kind of stuff. Or either one of your parents an engineer? No, my dad definitely taught me a lot about fixing things. That's his profession. He works in heating and air conditioning, running teams of people who fix things, and he's very mechanically inclined. And my mom is very bright. So between the two of them, I got the best of a lot of things to make it all work. So what was your first job um, straight out of college? Well, I started working pretty early. So my first job was in my grandpa's grocery store. He had grocery stores down in Lewiston, Idaho. And I started working there. And that was in high school. And then also in high school, I worked as a welder. So I started working, doing both jobs in high school, and then continued welding a little longer. And it paid better than bagging groceries. And then I started interning in college with different engineering groups in Seattle area. And then the first job out of school was with Quest Aircraft, working on the Kodiak. That was before the Kodiak was certified. And so as a young engineer, I got to do so much. I was doing full-scale testing, full-scale fatigue testing, all kinds of analysis. It was, it was a great opportunity and a lot of accomplishment, you know, being able to be there before the Kodiak was certified and kind of see that through in the last phases of the FAA certification was really satisfying to hit that milestone with the team there. Was it clicking yet at this point that your grandfather had influenced you in the early days of flying? Oh, yeah. Out of college, I had, you know, a couple job offers and the opportunity to go to, to work for Quest Aircraft to work on the Kodiak was definitely unique. The other ones were mechanical engineering jobs and they were 
would have been great jobs. But this was a little bit of an adventure. It was only a, a six-month offer um, to come as a contractor. I had been to Sandpoint, Idaho before where they were based, but my wife hadn't. And so we just decided, let's go do this thing. It would be a fun opportunity to go kind of be on the cutting edge with a startup company at the time. But yeah, I mean, the decision to do aviation as opposed to the other opportunities was definitely kind of looking back, thinking about those memories flying with my grandpa, for sure. There's a reason I invited Jacob onto the show. And it's not just because I wanted to geek out about flying. I always want to know how my guests think about sustainability and how they're improving the planet for the next generation. On our show, we talk a lot about sustainability and climate change. We've had experts in two wheels and four wheels, food supply chain, agriculture, but we haven't talked about aviation. And I think aviation gets beat up a little bit, but it actually has one of the smallest carbon footprints. So why don't we start there? What is the problem that you are looking to help solve and make aviation more sustainable? Well, you're exactly right. Aviation gets beat up a lot. Globally, we're contributing two to three percent of the carbon emissions in aviation. But the challenge there is that that percentage is expected to grow as other industries are finding advancements and, and actually focus in a lot of ways for carbon reductions. The challenge with aviation is because we're making very large objects fly through the air, it just takes energy. And so that comes down to physics in a lot of ways. But there are huge opportunities coming along in aviation, and we're really proud to be a part of that. And it's kind of a proven roadmap. You know, the aviation partners in Seattle, they developed what we call a traditional or a passive winglet back in the 90s. And actually, winglets have been around for over 100 years, but they really commercialized it. And that's what we're all used to seeing on 737s and, and other platforms. And they've saved a lot of fuel, which has saved companies a lot of money, which is great for companies to have an economic driver, you know, to make that happen, but also for sustainability to save the fuel consumption in the first place and also to reduce the emissions. And what we're doing is kind of the next generation of that technology, kind of bigger and better, bigger benefits, and across a lot more platforms. So there's a couple of things I want to break down. I don't, I don't know very many people who don't like to fly, but who are you selling your, can we call it a platform, or do you want to call it innovation? Tamarack is all about increasing aircraft efficiency, and we do that by reducing drag on the airframe. We call it smart wing technology. And in, in the most simple of terms, we're extending the wingspan on an airplane. So it makes it a little more like a glider and makes it more efficient. So it burns less fuel because it has less drag. And so it helps. It also helps it climb better. So if a plane is operating at a higher altitude, which is limited usually by kind of the environmental conditions and the weight of the aircraft. So if a plane's really heavy, it just took off and it's full of fuel and it's full of people, then it can't climb as high. So it's not as efficient at first. And so our technology allows a plane to to climb to those higher altitudes where it's significantly more efficient. So that's the basic idea of what we're doing. And we think of the technology as sort of available for three different markets. First of all, business jets. And we have 150 business jets today flying around with the technology, saving a lot of fuel, which is important. But we want to do that for bigger platforms. So we also think about the defense space. The defense community has reached out to us and said, hey, we see what you're doing in the business jet community. Can you help us save fuel? Can you help us climb faster, provide safety for the missions? And so we think about those two markets, but also the commercial market. So if you look at 737s and A320s, for example, 
those are the planes that are flying the most, you know, worldwide, the most amount of hours per year. And there's a huge opportunity to save billions of gallons of fuel in those markets because there's just a lot of volume. There's a lot of people traveling that way and a lot of air miles being flown that way. So our technology will be applied in those three different market spaces and also unmanned versions of, of those kind of across the spectrum. But it's a, it's a really simple technology. People always say, well, why hasn't someone done this before? Well, because someone hasn't done it before. That's, that's it. And so we've developed the technology and patented it. And now we're moving into different markets to be able to provide all the benefits, economic benefits, but also sustainability benefits, which are really important for all of us. And you talk about the process that you went through, because I can't imagine it being an easy process, pretty daunting. Like, what was the cycle? Yeah, not an easy process. So our founder, Nick Guida, was doing modifications for other companies, traditional winglet modifications. Because you're extending the wingspan a little bit, you're introducing more stress in the wing. It's kind of like trying to carry something close to you, and then now you're going to carry it a little further away from you. So you're, you know, it's harder to do that. So typically what you do is you add extra metal to the wing, which is weight that you're carrying around. It's not as efficient. So he said, why don't we do something better? We'll use a system. Instead of throwing extra material at the wing, let's use a system to relieve that load in real time. So most of the time you're getting all the aerodynamic benefit, but just in those moments of time when you're hitting a bump or uh, making a, a turn, uh, and the wing is getting loaded up more, will aerodynamically relieve that load. We have the technology to do that. We've been doing that kind of activity since the 70s. But putting the that technology along with a wing extension and a winglet allows kind of all the benefits without the structural and weight penalties. I just watched Return to Space documentary with Elon Musk. Have you seen that? I haven't. No, I'll have to check it out. I highly recommend it because one of the things that I personally thought was the most interesting was that the moment you actually see that I've got the boy joy, <laughs> the fascination when he actually saw success in that moment. So I was curious, were you there at the moment where you actually saw the success of Tamarack actually in flight and then look at the, the results? Yeah, I was. Thankfully, you know, I came just about a month after Nick started with the company. And so we had this hypothesis, you know, it's been, like I said, it's been done since the seventies, but can we do it? Can we make it work for this application? And so we outfitted his RV6, his little two-place airplane with an experimental setup. You know, we got controllers and hardware just off the shelf, actually production line stuff. It didn't matter how much it weighed. And we put that all together and then we flew the plane, flew the plane in bumps to see if it could relieve the load in real time because it has to react in about a tenth of a second, which is, you know, a very short amount of time. Similar timing to like airbag in your car where the bag has to be deployed in time to work. So that was an exciting time when we he got back from the flight. We pulled the data from the plane. We were processing it. And sure enough, you know, we could do it. So it kind of went from there. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. If you like aviation, there are a couple other episodes you might want to listen to, like Rupert Patel and his high-flying drones and Ferris Rosani and the super sports car he designed modeled after a cockpit. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe 
and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. I mean, you reduce drag and reduce climb, but ultimately, what is the fuel burn reduction? The fuel burn reduction really depends on on the airplane. But the biggest benefit we see is on some of the older Citation jets because they have less thrust to begin with and we can really benefit those platforms. And so on those, what we see is what is about a three-hour airplane and then you need to land and, and refuel is now a four-hour airplane with the same amount of fuel and the same thrust settings. So that's significant. I mean, 33% better is substantial. People have a hard time believing that. But it's true. I mean, our customers report back to us. That's what they're seeing. And it's really just an amazing benefit to the plane. And the, the benefits vary on the commercial aircraft when we are able to get into those in the near future. We're expecting about 10 to 15% improvement for those planes, which is substantial. The winglets that are on commercial jets right now offer about 4 or 5% efficiency improvements. So if we can double that or triple that, that's really, really significant. Do you also increase the lifetime of the plane? We do because of the unique way that we're addressing the extra load by alleviating that load in real time, we are able to do life extensions. And that's really important if you look at especially some of the military platforms, those are really getting used more aggressively in a defense context. And so being able to extend the life of those, you know, it makes the asset worth more over the lifespan of the of the airplane. Yeah, no, I think that's that's amazing. So Let's talk about fuel because aviation fuel is different than what you might put in a car or even a tractor, right? And there are alternatives to fuel as well. But let's, can we talk a little bit about jet fuel versus, you know, which is basically refined kerosene, right? To simplify it. And then there's AV gas, which I'm probably most familiar with, right? If we weren't doing the winglets and taking your approach, then what were some of the other things that you looked at in the spectrum and said, well, you know, here's there's several different approaches, but this is the approach that ultimately is going to allow us to reduce a carbon footprint. And then we have the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, has predicted that there's this humongous gap. And you write about this on, on your site in your white paper, which, by the way, is a great white paper. The 7.8 billion tons of COT. I don't even know what that looks like, right? So can you break that down? And a little bit and talk about why that's important that we actually are trying to reduce that gap and what the alternatives are? Yeah, well, the thing that makes our approach better is that it works with everything else. So there's a lot of work being done right now on better efficiency for airframes. NASA is working on high aspect ratio, you know, basically commercial airplanes with, with struts on the wing to make the wing extra long which is the same idea as what we're talking about. You know, we extend the wing, make it more like a glider to reduce the drag. But those are 25 years out and they talk about that. And sustainable aviation fuel is another great opportunity for the industry. It is jet A, it is jet fuel, but the way they procure it uses biomatter or other methods. And so the life cycle uh, emissions for producing it is much reduced as compared to, you know, fossil fuels. But the emissions are the same. It's, it is Jet A. And so, again, we can help with that because we're going to reduce the amount of sustainable aviation fuel that needs to be consumed and save a lot of gallons of that. And then the similar, I guess, for hybrid electric or hydrogen. If we're going to fly an airplane on hydrogen, it's a great opportunity because there are green hydrogen sources that are being developed right now. But that's a ways off. I mean, we're the FAA and EASA certification process 
is rigorous for a reason. We have the safest aviation system in the world and in all human history at this point for a reason, because the certification authorities and the industry have figured out safe ways to develop these technologies, but it takes time. And frankly, you know, the FAA and EASA are not prepared right now. If, if that technology were available and mature today, there's not really a good way to certify it that's been sort of figured out. So that's going to take some time as well. We're all moving in the same direction. All of those things are going to happen because the industry needs it, but it'll take some time. So our solution works with any of those to supplement them and, and work in harmony with them because we are reducing drag. Other companies are working on sort of the propulsion element for the most part, except NASA. They're working on the drag part two. They just have a much longer time frame in mind. So we're really excited about all of those, but we kind of stand in the gap. We can be the next thing that's bigger and better than traditional passive winglets to provide substantial savings in the near term and then continue to be integrated with those other technologies that are coming online to make them more efficient, to make them more lightweight and get more use out of the airframe. There's a whole bevy of electric planes that are coming to market, right? There's Airflow, and there's Beta, Universal, Hydrogen, and even Rolls-Royce has electric, right? Can you also enhance the performance of those planes as well? Sure. Yeah. If they're a fixed wing platform, I could imagine being able to help with those. You know, because of what we're doing, like I said, we're just making it a little more like a glider. Typically, a fixed wing platform is kind of constrained by physics and materials, even though they're advancements in materials and carbon fiber and everything, there's still limits. And so this is a supplement on top of physics to put a system in the loop to make the whole architecture more efficient. And so, yeah, yeah, there's definitely opportunity to help with those. And what about pilots? Do pilots need to learn anything differently or be trained? Not really. You know, the system's fully autonomous. The airbag analogy is, you know, it's similar. There's nothing really for a driver to do with an airbag in our system is reacting so fast. It's it's much faster than than human pilots could be reacting. So that part's autonomous. Of course, there's extra pre-flight checks and procedural things with the airplane, with the flight manual supplement and everything. But no, it's it's autonomous and pretty invisible to the pilot. So even my Beechcraft and my 172 benefit um, clearly from this. They would, yeah. And ride smoothing. So that's, especially for GA, that's a big opportunity because GA aircraft are operating it in bumpier environments. So what we're doing by alleviating the load in real time provides significant ride smoothing. We've had people comment who didn't really expect that, but they can definitely notice it. And that's a unique thing. In fact, bigger, bigger airplanes like the 787 actually use load alleviation just for passenger comfort, even if they're not doing it for the same reasons that we're doing it. So it, it has a lot of dimensions to the benefits. And you know, when I fly commercial, I always like to sit at the wing. I like to look and see. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, Jacob, but I like to see what's going on. I want to make sure the wings are working, you know, as advertised. On a commercial jet, am I going to see anything different if I'm now looking at the wing of a narrow or, or wide body? Yeah. Well, the most obvious thing is the, is the wingspan extension. But, you know, part of the unique thing of what we're doing is we're adding a special surface or a couple of surfaces on the wingtip and specifically to relieve the load in real time. So if you were in a gusty condition, watching out the window, you would see the surfaces moving and they're working together on the left and the right to relieve that load source. If you think about the wing wanting to bend up when you hit a bump, these surfaces are aerodynamically pushing the wing back down so that it's not getting overstressed. So you, you would, most of the flight, you wouldn't see it moving, but if you were in a gusty condition, 
then you would start to see that. And what about other potential applications? Is this something that in the future could be as drones become more sophisticated or even in space? I mean, or is this purely for planes? I don't know how it'd be used in space, but maybe on reentry sort of architecture. Drones for sure, especially, you know, fixed wing drones. Again, because reducing the drag on the airframe allows it to be more efficient. The load alleviation also allows us to increase, effectively increase the payload. So a lot of, especially defense drones, you know, their their whole purpose is to carry a payload. So being able to increase uh, the amount of weight that they can carry provides a lot of value from that standpoint. So another key component in aviation is that the commercial airlines, they need to make money. And then the pandemic, they weren't making money. This is going to help commercial airlines potentially, you know, reduce their cost as well, right? Exactly. That's one of the, to me, the most exciting things about what we're doing is not only does it have the sustainability benefit, but as a business person, it makes total sense. There's a return on investment for someone to put the technology on the plane. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. And that's that's not the case with some of the other technologies. And it's just a huge opportunity, you know, to to say, let's let's go ahead and put these on. From a business standpoint, it makes sense because of the fuel savings and the cost savings, but also the sustainability benefits for the future. And when you go into these conversations with whether it be the military or commercial, and you can present this whole scale, right, of return of investment. What are those conversations like? Are they aware that there needs to be change or are they coming to you or are you having to go out and, you know, kind of rattle wings, so to speak? It's a little bit of everything. And the return on investment is very dependent on the operator. If we're talking about a regional airline doing short hops, you know, that's a really different Maybe they're going to be looking more at the payload benefits rather than the fuel savings because on short hops, the, the fuel savings aren't as dramatic. But for an airline maybe that specializes in only having 737, if they want to increase the number of airports they can serve by getting a little bit of more range out of those platforms, then that's a that's a really different return on investment calculation. Are you seeing an uptick you know, with adoption of your product as it relates to the pandemic and or the war? Yeah, there's a lot of dimensions there. You know, one of the things from a sustainability standpoint that the pandemic affected was we weren't flying for a long time. And so emissions were way down and it really changed how we were thinking about emissions and in the industry from that standpoint. But one of the things that that changed dramatically during the pandemic also is that people changed to private aviation, to charter companies and or their own aviation solutions, you know, buying airplanes. They did that for a variety of reasons, you know, for personal safety and kind of physical distancing and things like that, but also just kind of recognizing some of the challenges with commercial travel. And so the private aviation has really done well coming out of the pandemic. As far as the war in Ukraine, that is probably going to have the biggest impact in aviation in terms of insurance. Aviation insurance has already um, been a challenge because of a lot of reasons, including the 737 MAX grounding. But now as we look at the war in Ukraine, the insurance impact for the insurance aviation insurance industry is much bigger, significantly bigger than the 737 MAX grounding. And so I think as far as the near-term future, I'm a little concerned about how that's going to affect insurance for aviation, commercial aviation, and private aviation, because that's going to have to be addressed somehow. I saw that you were just at an insurance conference. What was your top message to that particular segment? 
That's right. Yeah, I was there. It was a great opportunity to meet some of the folks in the industry there. I got to talk a couple of times. I was talking about aircraft grounding. I talked a little bit about the 737 MAX grounding, but also Tamarack had a brief grounding in 2019. So I talked about that, how it affected our company. And then I also had an opportunity to present with the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, Gamma, talking about new technology. A lot of what we're talking about, you know, about the new advancements in technology and especially in, in general aviation and how those are going to be helping the industry be more safe and more sustainable in the future. That's so many layers to the industry, right? How do you think we're doing report card-wise with all the discussions that you're having and all the regulatory committees? If you were going to the United Nations and you're going to give an update, what would that update look like and how do you think we're doing? That's a great question. You know, I think the industry... The certification authorities worldwide are trying to come up to speed and sort of catch up with industry as it relates to new technologies like electrification or hybrid technologies. But I think they're really struggling to keep up. And industry is, I think, doing a good job of working collaboratively, sort of working with the certification authorities ahead of time before they're asking for certification to sort of educate and collaborate at an early stage to be able to do that. But I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that the industry has coming soon. As industry develops technology that's ready for certification, but the authorities need to figure out how it's going to be done. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have as far as new technology development. Well, yeah, and if you remember the Wright Brothers quote, and I'm just going to read it again because now I think it even means more. The desire to fly is an idea handed down to us by our ancestors who, looking enviously on the birds soaring freely through space, on the infinite highway of the air. You're literally, you're the bird, <laughs> right? The other birds are looking at, you know, with the winglets, with the tamaric technology. I think other, you know, the industry and other pilots will now see because it does change. There is a beauty to the design as well, right? It's like, I'm sure there's a lot of people turning their heads when they see tamarack applied to a plane. What does that feel like when you see that just like, what is that? Yeah, especially in the business jet community, a lot of people are buying it because it looks great. It updates the look of the plane. It makes it look bigger, but it's really satisfying to know that people maybe buy it because it looks neat, but then when they are flying it, the safety benefits and the performance benefits that come sort of as they're experiencing them and, and getting that phone call, the best phone calls. I love these when we send a customer home. They bought the winglets, they fly home and they land and they call and they're just ecstatic because they saved so much more gas, so much more fuel than they expected going home. And they're just sort of digesting, how is this going to affect the way they use the plane now because of the increased range, because of the ride smoothing and maybe nervous passengers that they sometimes have, things like that, that didn't really mean anything. And the, and the safety, we got borderline chewed out from one of our customers in, in a good way because he bought the winglets they looked great they performed good but he said if you would have helped me understand ahead of time the safety benefits for taking my young family around and now how much safer my plane is i would have bought the winglets a long time ago because he's so much more comfortable on landing the plane's more stable he's flying slower speeds and landing so much safer he felt like that was that was the benefit for him, but he didn't really realize it until after the purchase. So to me, that's so satisfying to hear those reports that it's so much more than they expected. 
Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of pilots that give their personal time and their hours and their fuel, and it gets expensive to be a private pilot. And I say it's not funded, right? It's self-funded. But during California, when we had the, the wildfires, and there was a lot of rescue missions, you know, that I would watch, and just hearing things at the airport, I mean, people rescuing, you know, pilots rescuing animals and and families and getting whatever they could out of their homes and before things shut down and then you get TFRs and then you can't help people. But I, I think, you know, the beauty in that story is imagine a world in which you, you know, the, the cost and the performance savings would allow us to do more, right? And so as we were helping, you know, the, the sustainability and the climate change challenges, but we're also as a society and as mankind being able to do more, Right, and so your innovation in your in your technology are allowing these pilots to actually increase in so many levels. There's a social component here that I think is quite wonderful. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And like you said, there are so many dimensions. Being able to increase the payload for the aircraft allows you to put more people in. So if we're talking about those kind of missions, that's more people on board, but also just the safety. Like I said, the safety benefit of being able to do the mission with less concern about the weather as far as safety margins on the landing end of the mission. But overall, just the idea that we're reducing the cost to operate means that maybe you can operate more. And I know that's how Bob Briggs looks at what he's doing. The fuel savings allows him to do more missions, which is a great opportunity. But just like we were talking about earlier with commercial airlines and looking at how it makes so much sense from a business standpoint, but also a sustainability standpoint. If you freed up those resources through the savings, then that's just that much more. The organization's more efficient. They can do more good, for sure. Well, and fuel prices have gone up, and I've been trying to understand this. Fuel with commercial airlines, those contracts are usually negotiated years in advance. So is there just an opportunistic thing happening here right now because there's a war and we're coming out of the pandemic where so many lost revenue that the fuel prices are going up because you can, because people are traveling again? I mean, what, what do you think is really driving that? Yeah, that's another multidimensional question. You know, politics certainly play a part in that. Supply and demand play a part in that. So yeah, that that's a tough one. I think, you know, the sanctions regarding what's going on with, with Russia and Ukraine certainly impact that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go in the future. Like you said, the contracts, as far as the airlines are concerned, those are negotiated in advance, but you know, time marches on and that'll start to affect everyone. But the nice thing is uh, with things like efficiency modifications, we can save fuel and save money, uh, which is a benefit for everyone. So I also, the next generation, which is switching to electric and they're driving their Teslas and they think they're you know reducing zero. I don't think realize, you know, going back to that two two to three percent carbon emissions from the aviation industry, I think there needs to be some education there that aviation is, is not the biggest contributor. Factories and cars and agriculture are bigger culprits of CO2 emissions. Yeah, I think society is starting to see that. And I always think about it as sort of the macro and the micro. If we're talking about electric cars, in a city, there is less emissions in the city and, and sort of the smog, for lack of a better term, is reduced. But you have to also look at the life cycle of creating those cars. Absolutely. So where's the electricity coming from? How are we getting the batteries? All of those those questions are important and have to be answered. 
to look at the life cycle of it. But I think society is is still thinking about that, you know, with initiatives to buy local, to order less things that have to be shipped across the ocean, because that's one of the biggest contributors to CO2 emissions, for example. I think that's starting to come into focus for people. But you're right, there's still a big education piece. People get caught up in the sort of drama and debate. And there are always two sides to every story. But you have to think about it in the micro and in the macro to really understand and be educated about it in all facets of how those things come together. Who knows what heights are possible for Jacob and Tamarack? They've won the National Aeronautic Association's most memorable aviation award three times running. Most recently, the test was a dramatic race between two Citation jets, one that was modified with Tamarack active winglets and one without. The Tamarack jet rocketed through the course in just four hours and 35 minutes, despite a major headwind, and reached 41,000 feet without a step climb, and more than an hour faster than an unmodified jet, which had to fly around bad weather and stop for fuel. Tamarack is clearly winning the aviation race in the business jet industry, and we can't wait to see the company take on the commercial sector too, so we can all take advantage of sustainable air travel. Meanwhile, Jacob and his daughter are flying high as the next generation earns their wings. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>